part of the richness of being human is sometimes things will be shit and sometimes things will be fabulous. So we should, first of all, abandon happiness. Secondly, we should seek to live fulfilling lives. A fulfilling life is a worthy goal. And that the research suggests the way to live a fulfilling life is to align your behaviour with your values. And the more closely you can align your behaviour with your values, the more fulfilling your life becomes. Greetings and welcome to episode number 14 of the Making Permaculture Stronger podcast. I'm your host, Dan Palmer, and this fantastic conversation with Meg McGowan, who I met in April 2018 at the Australasian Permaculture Convergence in just outside Canberra, Australia, was recorded in December. We had the chat. Pretty sure it was December. Oh, I guess I'll record over this if it wasn't. Well, I just checked and it was actually September 2018. It's taken me this long to get around to getting it live. Well, and as you'll see, it's just a great chat. Meg's this real powerhouse, so much energy, and she's just got so much experience working with permaculture, design, learning from all different teachers, and just out there doing it at her own place and supporting others. So many profound insights she shares, and it was just a real honor to have her as my first guinea pig in this kind of experimental approach to future podcasts where I poke and prod around and try and bring someone's design process understandings out onto the table so thanks meg for being the debut specimen and enjoy the chat and i'll check in with you again at the end ciao here i am delighted to be in conversation with meg mcgowan tell us where you are exactly meg uh, i'm on the new south wales central coast so about an hour and a half north of sydney and an hour and a half south of newcastle beautiful and you're you're on is it five acres three and a half three and a half acres there okay great mm. i was delighted to make Meg's acquaintance a couple of well, I don't know, a couple of months, three months back, April, at the 14th Australasian Permaculture Convergence, which was just outside Canberra. It was a magnificent event. And in conversations with Meg there, and subsequently, it was great to meet, meet someone with real energy and enthusiasm and appreciation for thinking about permaculture and design and, and, and getting clearer on some of these basic understandings. So thanks so much for joining me today, Meg. My pleasure, Dan. And I'm excited. I don't know if it's good to see if, if, if excited is the word you'd use, but this is the first experiment in this idea where I inquire into the design processes of colleagues and kind of unpack them and try and ask some difficult questions, but you know, just really pull what it is you do as a practicing permaculture designer out on the table to share with colleagues and, and to encourage and invite this kind of conversation where we share what it is we actually do in a process sense and help each other get better at it. How are you feeling about that? Uh, look, I'm very excited, Dan, because even in the preliminary conversations we've had, you don't often get that opportunity to step back from what you're doing and to ask yourself exactly the sort of questions that you're asking me. And my design process has already been improved because of my requirement to clarify it so that I can talk to you about it. Mm. I think I'm up to three new cartoons about my design process. <laughs> awesome. All of which we'll make sure and include on the show notes page. Um, well, why don't you start with, a, a, if you wouldn't mind, introducing yourself and your relationship to permaculture, how long you've been, what you're up to, and then we'll, then we'll dive right into the process 
side of it? Sure. I'm close to 60 now, close enough. I discovered permaculture in my early 20s. I was living in Balmain in Sydney and walked into a bookshop there and found Rosemary Morrow's uh, Earth User's Guide to Permaculture, the first edition. Picked it up and started reading it, even though at the time I had no garden whatsoever. I had a little brick courtyard in the middle of a terrace house. But it wasn't just the gardening ideas that appealed to me. It was also just the concepts that were embedded in permaculture and the idea of creating systems that allowed humans to live in a way which didn't have uh, the serious ecological impact that we were obviously having on the planet. That was pretty exciting to me. Up until then, I'd been fairly depressed about human existence and uh, that that whole train of thought that we're a cancer on the planet and um, we'd be better off eradicated and um, all of that sort of environmentalist dialogue had been, I'd been around that my whole life. So to find something that said there's a better way, you know, it might actually be possible for us to live on the face of this planet and do good was pretty exciting to me at the time. It took uh, probably another eight years or so until I actually got to practice that in a garden but the thinking started to just become part of the way that I did everything. I didn't really realise it was a movement. I didn't know that there were lots of other people. These are pre-internet days so you didn't go online and connect with a community. You basically just did your own thing and then friends started talking to me once I built my own garden about oh, how'd you do that? And I'd talk to them about permaculture and then they'd say, oh, can you teach me how to do that and can you do a design for my place? And so I kind of organically became a permaculture designer in my spare time while I was a full-time police officer. And I think as I became aware of the permaculture movement, I was a bit shy about entering into it, seeing it as being primarily made up of the kind of people that didn't very much like police officers. So I, I, I kind of was a bit shy about getting involved. So I just kept sitting over in my corner doing my own thing. I started realising as I was introduced to modern management concepts that there was a strong parallel between quality management thinking, modern management thinking and permaculture. And when I was a detective superintendent in the New South Wales Police Force, I realised that there was a parallel between what was happening in the changes in contemporary management theory and permaculture and there were a lot of parallels there. So I started applying permaculture design principles to things like redesigning legislation or enforcement models or different processes within the organisation and ultimately that led to redesigning the major crime squad within the New South Wales Police Force following a Royal Commission And that was a circumstance where if we couldn't come up with an effective redesign, the Royal Commissioner was going to disband the major crime section of the police force, which would have been devastating for the people of New South Wales. And we would have lost hundreds and hundreds of years of policing experience. So, of course, I didn't mention the word permaculture during that process. It was all described in terms of contemporary management. That's a really easy match to make. It's really easy to talk permaculture in terms of modern management because a lot of the language and a lot of the principles are very similar, particularly when you look at all that triple bottom line stuff in management theory um, and how you have to take care of people and the environment as well as generating profit. That's all starting to look a bit familiar. Since I retired, permaculture has become a much bigger part of my life I've spent a lot of time 
first of all, designing this place. So we've been on this place now for about 23 years uh, and that gave me more time to implement more permaculture because you never run out of permaculture to implement no matter how many years you're on a property. <laughs> and it also gave me a lot more opportunity to get involved in the local community and to start sharing permaculture with my own community. I've had a couple of sort of epiphanies along the way. One was that the traditional design process of going out and doing a site analysis and interviewing clients and coming up with a paper plan was very, the success was limited. And I think part of the reason the, the success was limited uh, is because a garden isn't a single moment in time and a plan is a single moment in time. But also because if you didn't teach people permaculture as you went along, what you had was a really uh, was a plan that, that beautifully embodied the principles and ethics of permaculture, handed to somebody who didn't necessarily understand that. So the very first time they're challenged by the landscaper they've employed or the gardener garden section person at Bunnings or whatever, they they and you know really good example. I had somebody where I'd recommended an area of pale paving to help keep the area cool and when they went to buy the paving the guy in the paving shop said oh nobody's putting power paving down anymore we're all going with this dark stuff and you know three months later when I said to her how's all that going and she said oh yeah but that area is so hot that we can't sit there and I'm thinking huh? what's <laughs> so it's a good example of how someone who doesn't understand can make what for us is a pretty obvious mistake so um, my husband and I started moving into an area that we call permacoaching, which is where we go out onto somebody's property and for an hourly rate, we teach them how to design their own property. And that's what we're doing now. We're also doing something where we exchange permaculture training for help on our property and we're doing that as a bit of an alternative to woofing. So that we're, first of all, we're building networks with local people. We're providing permaculture training to people who don't have the financial resources to pay for it. And we're, what, we're, what we hope we're doing is establishing a model for other people in permaculture as they age that allows them to stay on their property where they exchange knowledge for practical assistance. So it's getting very much back to that Indigenous idea of we become elders and we, come, we become valued for the knowledge that we have to share and people are prepared to exchange practical, physical help for that. There's a bunch of other stuff we do as well, Dan. There's a produce share and there's a newsletter in the, in the community that I write for and I, at the drop of a hat, we'll give presentations to just about anybody on permaculture for no charge whatsoever because the world needs more permaculture and it needs it really quickly. And we also do a bit of voluntary work for people who are disadvantaged. So we've gone into housing commission areas and taught people how to grow their own food in their own garden. And we just do that as part of our, our fair share commitment. Yeah, great. Yeah, as, as I've said to you on past occasions, I often think that I get a lot, I have a lot going on until I hear you talking about what you do. But this yeah, but is I, great. I, don't have, I don't have children and, and I'm retired and self-funded, Dan, so. There <laughs> you go. That's your, that's your secret. Alrighty, okay, let's let's do this. So, so that's a lovely intro. You've got lots going on. Fascinated to hear more about this idea of permaculture coaching. But let's let's start at a high level. If we can work to patterns, if we can sort of try and pull your design process understandings and practices when you're out there 
doing this stuff. Uh, if we can yeah. pull them out onto the table and then and then sort of unpack them, moving from patterns to details. So I don't know if you have, yeah, if you're able to sort of talk us through it at a generic or kind of high level, maybe even higher than the distinction between applying it to the police force and applying it to a landscape, you know, at a high level, what are the main kind of distinctions or phases within the process? And then from there, let's start to drill down. Okay, so the I think everything starts with um, observation and analysis. Everything starts with developing the best appreciation you possibly can of whatever it is that you are seeking to redesign. And I, and I know we use the word design, but we're always redesigning because there's really no such thing as a blank canvas. I'm also an artist and, and as an artist, I know that even a blank canvas is never really a blank canvas. It's, it constrains me to a certain size. It has a certain texture. There's good canvas and bad canvas. It might be primed, it might be unprimed. And I think when you come to design, you need to keep that in mind as well. You're always redesigning. You're always looking at what's there and thinking about uh, this is where it is now and where do I want to take it? And I think the where do I want to take it is the very first place you start to introduce some permaculture thinking. So I might, for example, look at a, a site that's a home renovation site and think, how can I maximise the profit on this home renovation site, which tends to be the investor approach? If I'm doing that from a permaculture perspective, just to illustrate my point, I'm going to start with, how do I renovate this site so that I am doing it in a way that's consistent with the three core ethics of permaculture? And after we spoke last time, I was interested in this idea of we don't really have in permaculture a clearly stated goal. We have ethics clearly stated, but we don't talk about a clearly stated goal. So I went hunting for one and I really like, there's a, a passage in the designer's manual um, where Bill Mollison says that, you know, what we're trying to do is care for surviving natural assemblies and leave the wilderness to heal itself, rehabilitate eroded or degraded land and create our own complex living environment. And the interesting thing about that is I see a lot of focus on the third of those about creating complex living environments, but I always start from, you know, my macro is the whole planet. My macro is we've got a number of global issues affecting us and we've also got regional issues affecting us and permaculture at its heart is about us looking to find a way to, if not remediate those issues, then at least respond to them or seek to address them. And I'm not suggesting permaculture has all the answers, but as a design model that allows us to move further, further towards ecological health, I haven't found a better model. So when I'm looking at a circumstance and saying, okay, what's the, what, what is this, this thing that I'm about to redesign? I'm also thinking about how does this fit within the context of those, if those are my goals, how does this fit? Now, if I'm looking at an acreage where, an a, where, where one portion of it is literally wilderness, that's pretty straightforward. Um, often you're not. Often you're looking at a circumstance like a suburban block or an, an apartment building or even a, a company or a process. There is still this element of how does this relate to the natural world? Um, so, for example, the choice my daughter has made to live in high-density um, development in the middle of the city means that land is freed up 
that would otherwise have been taken up with suburban housing. So she's made a conscious decision that she's, and she's also chosen a building that has a large uh, green space in the middle of the development so that there's garden there and there's habitat for wildlife and there's, so even though it's an apartment block, there's still this permaculture thinking behind the choice. So I start from there, I look at the ethics, I collect as much information as I possibly can. When I can, I also get other people's perspectives. Um, I love the saying, the truth has a thousand eyes and I'm always aware that I see everything through my own paradigm and I bring to everything my own biases just like everybody else. So it's always really useful when I can to say to other people, um, what do you see from where you're standing? So uh, when I teach design, I always love that old, um, the old traditional story about the blind people and the elephant and how depending on which part of the elephant you've got hold of, you think that it's a tree trunk or you think that it's a rope or you think that it's a snake um, or you think that it's a brick wall. And I often think when we're in our observation stage, we grab hold of one bit of the elephant and it takes a lot of effort to get us to let go of it because we're really sure we know what the problem is. Um, and that process of opening ourselves up to the opinions and the perspectives of others is really useful because you often do come to realise that you're looking at an elephant. Um, but you can't do that without input from others. So that's a really important part of what I do. These days, that process, in a practical sense, is greatly facilitated by access to online resources. That, you know, when you start, as well as talking to people and researching the history of something, when you start bringing up images of something on a screen and looking at it um, from a helicopter perspective and you can zoom in and out and you can go and find information about how, how flood affects that land and um, whether or not it's likely to be affected by rising tides. That's both literally helpful from a design perspective and it's also a useful analogy for the kinds of thinking you need when you're not designing land. So how much more information can you gather about this thing and, and you'd be familiar, Dan, with a, with a SWOT analysis. So a SWOT analysis is a management tool often used in a risk assessment process and you talk about the strengths and the weaknesses part are always inside the organisation and the opportunities and the threats are always outside the organisation. So when I'm in that observation stage, I find that a really useful tool. I think about what are the strengths and the weaknesses of this thing that I'm designing and that's you know, if it's, a, if it's a site, I'm looking at things like there's water. That's a strength. Uh, there's already some vegetation. There's already some remnant rainforest. There's uh, already an access road on contour. If there are weaknesses, uh, the existing access road has been brought in above the house. The water tanks have been sited below the house. The land has been completely cleared. There is no fire break. So thinking strengths and weaknesses can be a really good way to make sure I've covered off. And then opportunities and threats are external. So when I'm doing my sector analysis and I'm thinking about what are the opportunities here, and opportunities include physical things like there's a view, uh, there's a breeze, these are all opportunities. But opportunities can also be, and particularly in terms of some of David's recent work in retro suburbia, opportunities can include 
there's a neighbour that's got a, a really beautiful garden <laughs> who, know, who clearly knows a lot about what grows well in this area. Uh, there's someone down the road with chickens who might be prepared to share manure with me. There's somebody up the road that runs a coffee shop and I might be able to get coffee waste from them to put into mushroom farming. So you're looking at what the resources are. And again, this is all tying back into your three core ethics because sometimes your opportunities are about waste that can be repurposed on site. So you're already thinking about, first of all, integrating into your existing community, but also how are you applying the ethics of permaculture in a broader sense than just the site? So I'm bringing things in that might otherwise be wasted or otherwise be causing damage. Our property has a creek. So when I did analysis on this property, one of my threats is what's upstream. I can do all, all the work on my riparian zone to rebuild it and then somebody dams it upstream and the whole lot's ruined. So that gets me thinking about how do I educate the people further upstream to think about what it is that they're putting in because that's going to be running through my property. So that process of getting as much information as possible... I do agree with Rosemary Morris made the, made the observation that if you do enough analysis at the outset, the design part of it becomes comparatively simple in the sense that, I mean, I, I don't think land designs itself, but I think if you listen carefully, <laughs> the design part of it becomes a lot simpler because some things are very obvious. So... And, and I've mentioned some of those already. You know, we know that if you run a road in behind your house, that your house will flood because the water will run off the road. So some of it's just that the physical elements of the site and how that's going to impact what you're doing. But some of it's also informed by the opportunities and threats analysis that you've done outside the site where you're thinking about, well why would I use that as mulch when I can access that as mulch? So it is about that very strong sense of place that, and very strong sense, you know, I, people in training get sick of me using the word context. <laughs> so people will say, um, and my other, uh, the, the other thing that they say I need on a T-shirt is it depends because that's my answer to most questions. You know, should I have a banana circle? Well, it depends. Should I have water tanks above my home? Well, it depends. Should I, whatever, well, it depends. And that's because everything has context. And I think that initial analysis stage is all about getting to know your context as well as you possibly can so that when you start making design decisions, they are appropriate to your context. Once I've done the initial analysis, I enter into what I call a design cycle and the design cycle, again, is based on... There's a design cycle in management which runs Plan, Do, Check, Act, which is called the cycle of continuous improvement. In permaculture, I don't think we start with planning. I think we start with observe and then learn. So it's not just looking at it. It's what, what have I learnt from observing that? And then we plan and then we implement. And then we observe what happened after we implemented and we learn from that and then we plan and then we implement again and then we keep going around that cycle. So there is, there's this initial body of observation to start with where, and I know there's a tradition that says wait 12 months and I think in an, in an ideal environment that's really good advice but 
I'll give you an example. I've got a young woman I'm mentoring right now who's moved away from a well-paying job and onto land. There's some pretty obvious priorities for her and one of them is she needs to start generating income. So she can't wait 12 months <laughs> to observe her land and she's someone for whom the scale of permanence becomes a really useful tool. So as I'm getting further down into the process, we'll revisit the scale of permanence, but we won't get distracted by that just now. So that's where I'm at. I go observe, learn, plan, implement, observe, learn, plan, implement. And while I'm doing that, one of the things that I talk about with designing is I have two, there are two clear outcomes that I have in mind to determine whether or not what I've done is successful. The first is that I have, and I won't take responsibility because you never implement a design on your own. It always involves lots of people. But I've been responsible for leading or facilitating is a better word. I've been responsible for facilitating the creation of a system that's consistent with permaculture ethics and principles. That's my first criteria for success. And my second criteria for success is I have been successful in integrating the human beings that are going to operate within that system as part of that system. So that integration process is something that has to start very early on. And you have to bring people along with you. That if that, if that design cycle of observe, learn, plan, implement, if you think of that as a, as a spiral, then there's no point setting off on that journey and not bringing those people with you. Because if they don't come with you, at some point you've got this really beautifully designed permaculture system and the people that are expected to live within it are way back at the beginning and don't understand where you are or what it is that you're doing. So there's this, there's the, there's the ethics as the kind of foundation, there's the goals, helping me to stay on track for where I want to go. There's the principles which, which are um, reminding me of the, of the processes that I'm going to use. And then there's this ultimate evaluation, which is did I create this system? Uh, are those people fully integrated? And I think my third criteria is this. Can the whole thing continue to evolve without me? And if I've achieved those three things, then I consider that to be a successful design. If the whole thing falls over when I walk away, then, you know, it's, there's, there's no, that's my, this is my yield. This is my three-part yield as a designer. Well, wonderful. Thanks, Megan Shivers. You're, um, you're keeping me on my toes here. That was, that was, that was a lot to take in. But I think I did okay. So what, how about this? I'll, I'll, I'll recap what I heard and then, and then maybe we'll, pull out I felt like there was some really real gems in there some real some powerful insights that'd be great to pull out and maybe have you edit or you know confirm or speak to and then maybe we can we can go and dig into some examples of real life processes you're part of okay so so you, you start by you didn't use these words maybe this is because you mentioned the police force earlier but you, you case the joint thoroughly <laughs> <laughs> in, your, in your words you um, <laughs> Yeah, that, that's the criminals, Dan. The criminals <laughs> the police secure the crime scene. <laughs> you, you talked about appreciate. I don't think you said deep, but you know what I got from you was you're talking about. You start with appreciating what already is a, a process of deep appreciation. What's often referred to as observation and, and analysis. 
which of course also involves synthesis. But I, I, I mean, this was the first, well, what dropped for me is the, the first insight that was music to my ears, which when you mentioned there's no blank canvas and even that this word design is perhaps not quite as accurate as redesign because you're always, always working with, with transforming something that already exists. That was great. So you start, you're immersing in that. You've already got a couple of goals. And a bit, maybe you can clarify this, but what I took from it was you say you, you're, you kind of arrive with these goals which are central to your work in permaculture. You mentioned the inspiration from Bill Mollison's sort of threefold approach. Do you also, is, is, is it that... Is this the point at which you delve into the the goals of the or the intentions of the the people living there? Yeah, that's. I mean, I'd consider that to be part of my initial um, observation and and collection of information. And I, uh, it's one of the things where um, my process differs to the way some people work. I would prefer to, if if I'm dealing with an actual physical garden or or site, um, I would prefer to learn all I can about that before I talk to them. Uh, and the reason for that is it's interesting that only today I'm designing training uh, with my co-trainer Sandy today and Sandy said, you know the trouble with visioning, the trouble with visioning is it assumes that uh, we are the most important thing in the system, that human beings are the most important thing because the whole visioning process is what do you want as a human being out of this system? And Sandy's saying to me, what would happen if we, if we divided visioning into earth care, uh, people care and fair share? And we said to people, what's your vision for how this property is going to provide for the earth? And what's your vision for how this property is going to provide for people? And what's your vision for how this property is going to redistribute surplus to both earth care and people care? This is why I like to work with her because she comes up with stuff like this and I go, that is stone cold genius. You know, that's the idea that that process of sitting down with someone and every interview pro forma I've ever seen for talking to clients is all about, you know, uh, what kind of food do you eat and are you allergic to anything and what do you like to grow and what's your gardening experience? And, you know, there's nothing in that about how committed are you to reversing climate change and do you have any interest in offsetting your carbon footprint and do you have any idea what your ecological footprint currently is? That's not in any interview format that I've seen today. It's now going to be in mine after the conversation today, but I think she makes a really good point. Uh, the model, that model of talk to me about what you want out of the land assumes it's yours and gets us right away from that notion that I'm devoted to, which is we can't ever own land. We steward it and we seek to leave it in a better condition than it was when we purchased the right to steward it. But if we think about the history of the land, it's been here for millions of years. With any luck, it will continue to be here for millions of years. And we have this tiny window during which we have stewardship of it. And when you reframe talking to clients in that way, I think you're going to get a very different vision statement from them. Mm, it's interesting stuff. Um, maybe we can give it a little bit of time because I'm sure it's something a topic other people would find interesting because one of the ways I see it is that I remember Molson's stuff about emphasizing that Guy was his primary client, which I was like, my impression was that the kind of early on in the permaculture literature, the, the stuff around helping people articulate what it was they wanted was pretty weak. And, mm. and for a, 
um, Dave Jackie comes to mind, who I know a lot of people, particularly in this part of the world, and I'm sure in other parts of the world, are really grateful to Dave's work around what he calls goals articulation and, and supporting people to to um, articulate what it is they're after. I mean, one, one, in terms of my own process stuff, which I don't want to get into <laughs> too, too much, this is one of the podcasts, but, but I think it's a worthwhile point to, to, just to, to bounce back and forth a bit. I often like to talk to people and get a feel for what they're about and, and what it is they really want, where it very mm. much is about who are you. It's, about, it's, it's explicitly you, you, you. And I prefer to do that off-site, and, and I do it as if the site doesn't even exist. And part of where I'm coming from there is not, is not in any way prioritizing them over the site or anything like that, but I want to know what, what it is that brings them alive, what quality of life means for them, what needs to be true of their existence if they're going to want to continue doing whatever they're, they're doing. And then coming to the site, for me, that deep appreciation and immersion and listening that you talked about is, is really, in a, in a way, kind of humbling saying to, the, to, saying to the site or the property or the, or the place, what, what's, what do you want? You know, who are you? What's your unique character? And what, what would it mean for you to become more alive and more nuanced and more wise? And, and part of what that means is informed by the permaculture principles. You know, what would it mean for you to catch and store more, more energy and express more diversity and all, all that kind of stuff? And then I'm interested. I love, yeah, and I, I really love that idea, Dan, and I love the stuff in terms of the the work you've done with helping people to clarify what their values are and to work out from there. Um, I've all got a, also got a background in acceptance commitment therapy um, and acceptance commitment therapy is a model uh, that's evolved out of cognitive behavioural therapy which is used to help people with things like anxiety and post-traumatic stress and all kinds of mental health problems. The research behind that's really interesting in terms of what you're talking about because what the research says is that uh, we need to be very clear about what our values are and that having a fulfilling life, I mean, first of all, it says don't try and have a happy life. Um, a happy life is, is a, a delusion. Life is going to have ups and downs because all human life has ups and downs and that's part of the richness of being human is sometimes things will be shit and sometimes things will be fabulous. So we should, first of all, abandon happiness. Secondly, we should seek to live fulfilling lives. A fulfilling life is a worthy goal. And that the research suggests the way to live a fulfilling life is to align your behaviour with your values. And the more closely you can align your behaviour with your values, the more fulfilling your life becomes. And it was fascinating to me when I saw your work and I thought, to the best of my knowledge, you don't have a background in acceptance commitment therapy, no? Yeah, so, and yet, when I look at the work you're doing, that's very much about helping people bring their behaviour back into alignment with their values. And so when you're talking about that as a, an approach with clients, that's very appealing to me. And, you know, maybe in addition to specifically asking them about the earth, we should talk to them about, you know, what are your core values? Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, the point being, if, if you're not supporting them to support themselves to live life in a way that's closing the gap between values and behavior. You know, for example, if that gaps, if that's not on the radar and, you know, and the chances are if they're not, if they're new to land and all that, there's lots of ways in which that gap can end up being wider um, and quality of life can end up taking a hit, which means they leave, right? So the site does ends up not benefiting from it at all because they're not there anymore. And so yeah. to me, one of the ways that I, I see myself as taking on Mollison's dictum about, 
Gaia as the primary client is really serving the people and making sure that whatever's happening is, is, is consistent with them. And, and on several occasions, something has happened to me, and I'd be curious to see, see if you've had this experience, is that after thoroughly immersing in the people and what they're all about, and then repeating that immersion with the place, the overlap I'm looking for isn't there. <laughs> the overlap, oh, yeah. It's not there, and, and, and it doesn't seem like they're, they're getting closer. <coughs> So, you know, a yeah, difficult yeah. conversation often has to happen there. If, if, if I'm going to consider myself to be acting with integrity as a designer where I'm saying, look, you know, I, I, can't, I can't see what you, what you want and what the lamb wants. I, I'm not, you know, I'm not picking up an overlap. I might be wrong, but let me, this is my perspective. Um, yeah, but now I'm excited. But, and uh, what I'm excited about is that you've just given me, first of all, my answer is yes. I have definitely been in that situation in the past. And I think anyone who's um, worked as a designer has been in that situation. But I think you've just given me the answer for that, which is to come back to values. That if in that situation where, because clients aren't usually saying, I want a property that reflects my values. They're usually saying, you know, I want a fish pond, I want a veggie garden, I want to, I want to grow mushrooms, I want to, you know, they have a, they have a to-do list generally. And then underneath the to-do list is, oh, and I'd like to do that in a way that doesn't totally screw up the planet. That would be great. If we start with values and we say, you know, what is it that gets you out of bed in the morning and what do you want to stand for and, and what do you want on your headstone and if I was to ask five friends to describe you, how would you like to be described and all that values-based stuff and you're clear about that, then when you get that difference between here's my to-do list and here's the land, you're able to come back to somebody's values and say, look, I know you said it was really important to, to you to develop this land in a way that's sensitive to the environment and I can't give you X and do that. Now I don't have conflict because what I'm not doing is having a fight with them over X. What I'm doing is bringing them back to their values and saying, so let's talk about how we can reflect those values in another way. That'd be great. Do you think that would work? Because you've been in that situation. Do you think when, when you've been in that situation, being able to come back to values would be helpful? Hey, so this is Dan. This is a recording that I'm dropping into this podcast because that last thing Meg said was not only this beautiful, profound insight, but was also an invitation into a deepening dialogue about something that I'm really passionate about and is what I mean by this thing I call holistic decision-making. If you're interested, there's a website, holisticdecisionmaking.org. She's just summarized kind of the essence of it, which is if you can really, both in yourself and with others, if you can dive down into the, the core values you hold for how you want to be in a landscape or in your life or in your family or your marriage or whatever, you can then use that uh, as a filter or something to make decisions toward. And it's a really amazingly powerful way of evaporating or dissolving uh, conflicts that are, can otherwise be very common about oh we should do x or y so like well let's come back to what our, our core values are so sorry i missed it at the time meg what happened was something you you just said before the insight triggered a thought and i was actually looking for a quote from david hongren that resonated so with something you've said so i literally didn't hear what you were saying <laughs> so i felt like a real clown as i as i was editing this podcast there it is apology made and and right on right on there's been occasions where I've, I've, I've sort of said, hey, you know, you're saying this is, you're about A, B, and C. What this landscape is about is X, Y, and Z. Have you thought about selling it and moving somewhere else for these reasons? Or, you know, I'd like to see you go through. Have you ever had one, have you ever had one that bad? Have you ever had one where you, you'd recommend selling? Uh, yeah, I've had, yeah, at least one, if not two or three. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say two and a half. 
yeah, fairly recently, yeah, I had had such such an um, occasion because, of course, and I, and I think this is a, a, a really important thing that I haven't heard a lot of discussion about because often no. the assumption is you've got some land, you're engaging me as a designer, I'm I'm going to come in with the assumption that that you know that you're going to stay on the land as opposed yeah. to um, me seeing my job as if a healthy process is going to germinate and flourish here and you're going to have a happy future in a way that's synergistically positive for you and the place, then we're going to figure out whether that overlap exists. And if it doesn't, my job is to, is, is to let you know about it. And, and so yeah. you, can, you can walk ahead. You can, you can make the right decision for you. Or who knows, maybe you'll make the wrong decision for you because the wrong decision <laughs> might be to stay there. But either way, whatever decision you make, which I, of course I'm going to honour, at least you're walking ahead with your eyes open, knowing what some of those... In, in a sense, you could say these these are threats, right? Like a, a threat yeah. to to the viability of you in this place is the fact that there's not much of an overlap between, you know. Let's say, I mean, just just recently, I had someone who were really, they really wanted the green, lush, rolling hills, and um, they even wanted rabbits. The landscape wasn't even supporting rabbits, wow. like the, like the one up the road. And it's not possible. You know, th that description was never going to correlate to this 30-acre property. But there was a window of opportunity in the sense that the bit of the property that could be seen from the household area was a lot smaller. You could only see a couple of acres and, and, and there was opportunities there because there was water and all, all the rest of it. Anyway, yeah, great great thing to, to, to think about. Shall I keep going through yeah. my, my recap? Sure. Um, all right. Um, all right, so you you mentioned ethics. Is you know, it sounds like you always carry the three core ethics of permaculture with you, and you're using them as a lens at each, at each phase. And you talked about multiple perspectives. Would you say the truth has a thousand eyes? Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's nice. Getting multiple perspectives, mapping the whole elephant, pulling in technology. Um, you shared how you use the SWAT tool, which I hadn't really, I don't think I really heard about it used in quite that way. And the idea of strengths and weaknesses as there's internal and opportunities and threats as external. So that was interesting. And, and combining that in with the sectors stuff. Oh, one, one thing that I thought of when you were talking about one thing you're tracking or mapping or immersing in or listening to or appreciating is the um, opportunities. Very, very reminiscent of Mollison talking about the resources. You know, he yes. talks about a few, I'll try and do a, yeah. a Mollison voice. And, and the resources, resources that degrade with use and yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He says, if you, if you haven't, if you yeah. haven't shared with the client the resources on and off their site, you know, you haven't done your job. And he gives <laughs> hilarious examples about, well, it's, yeah, let's not go there. You can read about some of them in the designer's manual and other places. So, yeah, mapping resources, opportunities on and off-site. Oh, yeah, you, so you, you talked about, you, you were obviously alluding to that moment where the observation and the appreciation starts to segue or merge into stuff happening and, and possibilities emerging. And, and you talked about Rosemary's point that if you've been thorough enough in, in the appreciation and the observation that, the design becomes a lot easier because um, you, you talked about using the word context a lot. And from Christopher mm. Alexander, I, I, you know, I use that as the thing that you're immersing in. You're immersing in the context of these people in this place. And yes. if you do that thoroughly, the, uh, a, a suitable form, like a pattern or configuration, or you know, at, least, at least some initial steps forward, will emerge from that context with, without you having to be an expert designer that imposes them or injects them from outside. So it's great to hear that's something that's come up for you as well. I often at that point, Dan, have to actually hold back a bit because uh, that's when I start getting really excited, you know, and I'm always in that, in that phase, I'm always saying to myself, don't plan yet, don't plan yet, 
don't plan yet. <laughs> you know, you, you'll look at something and um, you may find the same, but my temptation is to go, oh, that'd be an ideal spot for X or, oh, we could do this or we do. And I have to keep reminding myself, stop planning, stop planning. You're observing, you're learning, you're observing, you're learning. It is very like a criminal investigation. In a criminal investigation, you, and I would teach criminal investigation by saying to young detectives, you've got to line up all your suspects as empty buckets and then have some empty buckets for the suspects you haven't met yet. And as you get evidence, put it into the bucket. It doesn't matter how full the bucket gets, until you've filled a bucket, don't make an arrest. So you're not ready to make the arrest because the bucket might be two inches off the top and suddenly bucket number eight fills up. So that kind of approach, that investigative mind is very helpful to me when I'm, do, when I'm in that phase. And the idea that, you know, you don't make an arrest until you've got, until you're sure that you've got enough to go to court. And I don't start planning until I've reached the point where I'm sure I've collected as much information as I need. Yeah, this is great. And, and anyone that they're listening, you know, you've got options, if, whether you're considering a career in permaculture or, or policing. Or policing, that's right. Yeah, it's yeah. a whole new career for permaculturalists in the police force. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I won't get into it now, but it is, it, that is that kind of idea. I'm really interested in this idea of, because like, I remember a time I was walking on a landscape with David Holmgren where he'd been engaged for a walk and talk for a couple of hours. And he'd looked at part of the property and the client was asking about a dam and he started to talk about how you could enlarge the dam and gave some different ideas about stuff you could do. And then we walked a bit further and we came across this little kind of, a dam waiting to happen, like it was just, just the nature yeah. of the landscape and the valley and everything was just like, oh my God, what a sweet spot for a dam. And he, we were just a little ways away from the client. He leaned over and he said, ah, did it again. <laughs> you know, I was, I was designing before I finished observing the place. And I chuckled yeah. to realise that it's not something any of us ever will stop doing. But yeah, I'm looking forward to going more into this idea that that it's a double-edged sword that yes in a sense you don't want to run in and start imposing all your great design ideas in a way that blinds you to what's going on but on the other hand to, to me if that's true that idea that the more you observe the easier the design becomes as mm. you and, and from the beginning is as you're immersing in what is and getting a feel for its contours and shapes and all that something is emerging already you know and your, your focus yes. at the beginning is more on observing but it's not like at some point it's like, okay, observation's finished, now design starts. It's like, well, no, that something's already there. It's like you've just got to push it across the line now or something like that. So yeah, and I, look, I, I like to say, I like to say um, it's, it's, it's a good idea for me to stay quiet until I have at least three or four options. Mm -hmm. You know, like it's, and, and I don't always come up with three or four options, but it's a good idea for me to stay quiet, like because your brain goes oh, banana circle, or oh, let's, uh, um, and it's a really good idea to take a deep breath and go, okay, well that's a let's put that up there as a possibility, you know, as I'm walking around, and I do like to take the client with me, and I like to, when they make suggestions, say there's certainly an opportunity for us to do something like that. And we'll keep that in mind and, you know, that, that may or may not be so that we're qualifying the fact that until we've done that whole process, we're not going to start locking things in. Um, and I'll use language like, yeah, yeah, great, but let's just stay a bit more flexible. Let's just stay a bit more flexible until we've had a really good look around and we've got all the information. And, you know, when people come and say, oh, and I want a pond here, or I want a dam here, I will say to them, uh, and why, why this location in particular? 
you know, and they they and they'll give you, oh well, you know, I'll be able to see it from the house and this and this and this. And if if I find another site where I think it would be a better place to put it, are you open to moving it, or are you are you is this a fixed thing that it has to go there? Yeah, yeah, that's that's great. Uh, coming back to the buckets, it's like when the options come up, it's like there's another bucket. Let's pull the buckets up and that's right. About to, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know if I'd use this exact phrasing, but the kind of thing I say to clients these days is like, um, you know, the, an idea will come up. It's, it doesn't matter who suggested it, but if they yeah. suggested it, it might be, that could be a great idea, but it's probably not, you know. There's, there's, <laughs> prob- there's, there's probably something wrong with it. And, and the pr- job of our process is to find what's wrong with it and make it better. There's yeah. this whole thing around designers searching for the right options and choosing because it, it can become like a multi-choice test, you know. So I've seen, I've, I know designers that will give clients, they'll say, here's, here's design option A, B, C, D, and the client will choose a bit of A, a bit of D, you know, yeah. uh, and, yeah. and whatnot, which I think has, you know, it's, it's, it's a way of involving the client, but I think it's a limited way, as opposed to if the idea that if you immerse deeply enough, one single option will rise above all the others, and it, and it won't come from outside, you know, it won't come out of the book, it'll come from the actual context you're immersing in. Yeah, and and I would prefer that to um, his A, B, C and D because a bit of A, a bit of B, a bit of C, a bit of D, as we know, you know, it's a bit like his his five recipes for dinner, all of them make great dinner. Oh, I think I'll take an ingredient from there, an ingredient from there, an ingredient. And now what do I have? A I dog's, have, we have a dog's breakfast. I have a dog's breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> And now I, I want to spend a bit of time on, you talked about this, the design cycle, observe, learn, plan, implement, observe, yeah, that, that sort of, you start with observing and at some point it kind of moves into the cycle. Yeah. Where, yeah, you, you've, you've obviously learned some stuff from your observations and then you do some planning and you focus on implementing. So it, might, it might be good to hear a bit about, before we come back to, you talked about the criterion, which I loved, I thought that was beautiful, your three criteria for a um, successful outcome. But yeah, before that, if you could talk a little bit about the, the transition from, because I think anyone can relate to, oh yeah, you observe first and you learn some stuff and then out of that you, you do some planning, you know, you do some premeditating yeah. or what could happen here. But yeah, tell us about that transition from planning to implementing. So from, you know, you know sure. you've, you've talked about, um, hey, I, you don't, you don't do, you don't, you're not into a big fancy plan. So are you talking about just focusing on the best next step and taking it or what happens? Yeah, usually. Yeah. And look, I, I still love, I love um, drawn plans. I love them. Um, and uh, I do still come, sometimes come across people who need the drawn plan. And they tend to be big picture people, not surprisingly. They tend to be people that go, um, I'm reluctant to do anything at all until I have a sense of where I'm going. And in which, at which point I'll get them to specify what kind of time frame they want. Uh, one of my issues with plans in the past has been it's a, it's a snapshot in time. And my experience is people tend to do something that's, that's got a kind of a five to ten year um, you know, in five to ten years, that's what your property is going to look like, although there's nothing on the plan to tell you that. Um, first of all, there's been no management of expectations there that, you know, people often look at those plans and go, oh, I can't afford that. How am I going to build that? You know, without saying to them, oh, yeah, but no, no, you don't start there. You, you have to start way back over here. And then in five to ten years, it's going to look like this. So, first of all, that model of planning can be very overwhelming for people. It can appear cost prohibitive. Um, because you look at it and you see that there's, you know, 500 trees and 2,000 plants in it and you just throw your hands up. Um, so some of it is there's a, before I get into planning with, with um, somebody, 
there's a sense of figuring out the kind of person that they are. So it was really lovely to hear. You've described that much better than I do when you talk about um, getting down to what their values are. I'm also looking at, I guess, some of the personality stuff. Uh, I'm working with someone at the moment who's, um, who's got ADHD and who openly tells me she has ADHD. Um, she can't read a two-dimensional plan. So when I start drawing stuff, she looks at me blankly and says, I don't know what that is. What is that? She actually can't interpret from the two-dimensional to the three-dimensional. And the very first time that happened to me was about 15 years ago. And the very first time it occurred to me that somebody couldn't do that, I took photographs and drew sketches over the top of the photographs and they went, oh, okay, now I get it. So, you, so they're actually looking at their perspective of what the thing would look like. And it was a huge clue to me as a designer that while two-dimensional plans are something I adore and could sit and draw them and hand colour them all day because that's such a lovely creative thing to do. They're not necessarily the best tool for helping clients achieve what it is that I'm, you know, when I go back to what my three goals are, how do I integrate people into a system if they don't understand it and if they don't appreciate it and also if, if the piece of paper puts them off before they even start. So I'm really looking at how do I best move from, I've, I've observed... I've learned, I've come to understand the client, I've got a good appreciation of the land. I'm always coming from, I mean, um, someone recently said, oh, yes, Megan, we know earth is first for a reason because apparently I say earth first for a reason so often people now quote me <laughs> saying it. But I say, you know, I'm all, earth care is first for a reason. We have to start from there. So I'll start developing an appreciation of the kind of person are they someone that's going to need big chunks or little chunks some people need little chunks in which case I'm going to plan in little chunks and some people need big chunks in which case I'm going to plan in big chunks the initial observe and learn phase I will have figured out some stuff about staging and priorities so some people have an urgent need for an entertainment area. Some people have a desperate need for a vegetable garden. And I know that if we're going to continue to engage them in the design process, there's some kind of a burning need that we need to be able to address pretty early on. And so instead of designing the whole property, we might design just one thing. Or we might design, it might be that we talk about and I don't always use zones. It might be that we talk to people about zones and, and I say to them, we're going to do uh, zone one and zone five. And that's where we're going to start. So one of my favourite ones, if I'm using zones, is something I call spiral outwards and spiral inwards. So you start people at their back door and at the same time you're looking at are we going to have a fire break and where's the wilderness because we know those things are going to impact the microclimate on the site. And we also know that, you know, if we're planting, for example, a fire break or a wind break, it needs time to get established. And it's also going to have a significant impact on the microclimate on the site as it grows. So get that stuff in around the, bound, around the boundaries and then start the stuff at the back door. The reason I like the two interlocking spirals is it's very satisfying for people. There's this sense of, first of all, there's this sense of here I am right at the very edges of my property, which, which gives people that that satisfaction that they're doing, you know, I'm, I'm not stuck here at the house in the middle of this vast uncharted wilderness that I have no control over. And a lot of people have this desire for a sense of control. You know, I'm in charge 
of something and I'm, I'm doing a thing. So the, the two spirals works well. I will usually introduce people to the notion of the scale of permanence very early. And I do that for a couple of reasons. The first is that we know as designers that an appreciation of the scale of permanence helps to avoid really expensive mistakes. Maybe, maybe yeah. I'll just, sorry, I'll just jump in just for anyone who doesn't know what the heck that is. So the scale of permanence was developed by a farm designer that was one of the few people that Morrison spoke about respectfully in a, in a broadacre design context. <laughs> and the scale of permanence is, is a list of stuff that you think about when you're developing a farm and you can apply it to whatever context. The idea is you start by thinking about and and implementing the things that are most permanent, which are the things that are hardest to change, and then you move towards the things that are more transient and easier to change. So I think the original scale was something like... So I'm just throwing this in because I stuffed it up slightly during the actual chat. So the sequence, uh, Yeoman's original sequence, I'm pretty sure was climate, landform, water, access, trees or forestry, subdivision structures topsoil sorry take, yeah. take it away no no that's fine um and and i think there's been improvements upon the original one and i know milkwood uh, nick Ritter now includes legislation as being something worth considering and i found that really useful talking to people because you do have to say things like you know oh i want chickens yes you're in an apartment building you can't have chickens <laughs> so that i but it helps people First of all, to avoid expensive mistakes. But I also think the scale of permanence is a great way to encourage people to start doing something because it's a way of saying to them, all this stuff over on the right-handed side of the scale of permanence is very easy to change. You know, if you put, we all know if you put in a, if you put in a, a small garden of annuals and you decide you don't like the things that you're growing, you've literally got a year and, and the whole thing needs fixing again. And even just talking to people about the decisions they make. And I, I also like, once you've introduced the concept of a scale of permanence, you can use that to talk to people about, for example, a scale of permanence with regard to um, planting. So, you know, here's a tree that's going to live for 100 years and here's an annual that's going to be dead next year. Uh, this annual is very low risk because it's going to be dead next year. This tree is a very important decision because it's going to be there for 100 years. And just teaching them that skill has uh, a huge impact on the way they place plants in their in their space, but also on their confidence to place the things that are easily picked up and moved. You know, when you say to them, see all these plants over here, they're all like furniture. If you get them in the wrong spot, it's okay. We can pick them up and move them and they'll be fine. Because for a lot of people that I've worked with, just getting them to engage with gardening at all and getting into the soil and doing stuff is my first um, big hurdle. It's also my practice very early on to get people to identify where their zone five is, which in permaculture terms means the area that we're setting aside for wilderness or for the natural world. And that's whether or not I teach zones. So you and I will call it zone five. But um, what I'll say to people is, and we'll go back to the values again, we want, to, we want a less narrow ecological footprint and we want to tread more gently on the earth. And one of the ways that we all do that is making sure that on the land that we have responsibility for, every single one of us sets aside some of it for other living things so that we have a place that's habitat. 
Now, the people that I'm working with the most now live on acreage. We're doing a lot of work with getting them to re-establish riparian zones along creeks and to protect ridgeways with bushland so that we're re-establishing wildlife corridors all the way through our local environment. And that's another way of talking to people about how your land does not exist in isolation. It connects to everybody around you. So, yeah, the, the planning part is the part where... I completely abandon any linear process. I can't draw it as a flowchart because it, it is informed by that early observation and the learning process and every person is different. The other mistake, that the other rookie mistake I've made in the past is only dealing with one of the humans on the site and forgetting about the other humans and then going, oh, no, this person understands exactly what I've been doing and their partner's going, why is there all that mulch and why is there an earth mover in our back garden digging that ditch? You know, why have we got an ugly open drain? Why is there an ugly open drain in my garden? So part of it is that. And, it, and of course, all that slows you down. All of that stuff slows you down in terms of making sure everybody's coming along with you. It's a lot easier to just walk in and go, okay, got it, that's going there, that's going there, let's build one of those. There we go, permaculture, see you later. But as we know, you can walk off that side and then the whole thing's going to fall over inside 12 months because the people haven't been integrated with totally, it. Totally, totally. Yeah. I'm conscious of time and I'm, well, I want to make sure we spend a little bit of time on those th beautiful three criteria. But that was yeah. awesome. I mean, I think that was really, really rich. And one thing I was going to share is when you're talking about your, your quote, there's a reason earth care comes first. It's a nice way of saying that other quote I've heard, which is nature always bats last. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, anyway, yeah, I, I really love to hear that you're immersing in the dynamics of the process itself. There's a few levels. On the one hand, you're immersing in place, you're immersing on people and entering this cyclical um, rhythmic process that's unfolding. But on the other hand, you're, you're immersing in the dynamics of that process itself and you're customizing the size of the chunk that you present to a client and, and you know what actually happens so that's fantastic yeah. to hear and, and I really love that idea of the double spiral too which I think is brilliant because on the one hand it means people can start to play and make low-risk experiments close to home um, mm. at the same time getting a wriggle on um, and, and starting to do some of the longer term pivotal integral keystone stuff like windbreaks and dams and roads whatever the case may be so that, that was really useful I hadn't heard it talked about in terms of a double spiral pattern before but before we wrap up Oh, yeah, do you want to comment on that briefly? I'm yeah, sorry. look, I just wanted to briefly say that the, the lesson in nature is that you maintain a dynamic equilibrium. You don't, it's not static. And if we're learning from, from the patterns in nature, then I think as designers we need to learn the same thing. There's a, we need to maintain this flexibility. I'm always growing and changing. My process as a designer is always evolving. And if I'm an effective permaculture designer, so it should be, I should be better with each client. I should learn something each time I design so that my design process is never, you know, I'm never going to be able to put it on a piece of paper and go, there we are, done. It's, it's all, I always refer to it as a design process or my current design process. Mm, yeah, beautiful. That's, that's great. Great to hear. Lots of music to my ears, this, this, um, this episode. Now, yeah, let's, let's wrap up. I'd love to just have you speak to these three criteria, which I had down is, so number one, is, is whatever happens consistent with the ethics and principles of permaculture? Number two, has what has happened here further in, you know, supported the integration of, of this place and in in these people? And then finally, can I, can I leave and it doesn't collapse 
which of course is a dance. Sometimes you leave and it collapses a bit, so you come back and then you leave and, um, and, mm. and all that. Because of course you, you want to leave as soon as you can, but not too early. So it's that, there's that rhythm there. One, one question I wanted to ask you about, because I, I hear a lot of people talking about, oh yeah, you know, the permaculture design process is about applying the ethics and principles and, you know, does it catch and store energy tickle? cross and I mean I get the sentiment which I think is great but I think it's often pretty vague and, and some of these people that say this when I see what they're doing I'm not I'm not that clear on whether or not they're doing it at all so it'd be good to, to tell me if you can sort of yeah make that like like for example is it the idea that at the start of the process it's like well the, the site is catching this and storing this much energy so at the end we want that to increase or you know how does that work and maybe any other comments on the on those beautiful three criteria? Oh, that's a it's a whole other hour, Dan. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, you got, you got, you got two minutes. You got two minutes. Okay, my 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 first observation would be um, that we don't have one agreed set of principles, and uh, it's important to go back to where the principles came from, uh, what they evolved out of. And my understanding is they evolved out of observing both the natural world and indigenous cultures, um, including failed indigenous cultures, and asking questions like, you know, how are these systems maintaining this dynamic equilibrium where they're not destroying, where they're where they are. I mean, my current favorite definition of permaculture is that we have a pattern for designing systems that meet human needs while increasing ecological health. That's my current favourite definition. Mm. Um, the principles are a bit like values. So they're a bit like the way, you know, I have a value around family life and so does my partner. And we agree that those are our values might think that the way to have a commitment to family life is to go off and work 12 hours a day and commute in order to make the money to provide for the family and another person might think the way to provide for family is to go without things that require money and stay home and spend time with them the value is exactly the same the value is spending time with family the the principles i think are not a checklist so much as something that is woven all the way through the design process. So when I'm designing, it is inherent in that design that I am cooperating with nature, I'm building resilient systems, I'm designing from the macro to the micro, and I've got this acute appreciation of energy. So, you know, when I'm introducing people to the idea of functional location and I'm saying, now we're going to put your compost bin on the way to your clothesline so that when you walk past it, you remember. And when you do seedlings, they go here next to the tap. You and I know all of that stuff is about energy efficiency. It's all about how to work within that system in an energy efficient way. And I will be explaining that to the people that are going to be integrated within that system. But I do think it's a long conversation and I think it's a conversation we need to be having a lot more, which is the principles aren't a to-do list. There's not, it's not the case that you start, you know, you don't do your observations and learn from your site and then go, right, so how am I catching and storing energy on this site? And how am I producing no waste on this site? That's not the design process. The design process is not to work through those principles because they're principles, they're not strategies. 
So, you know, it's, it's like, I, I'm going to have to think about it. There's going to be a better analogy than anything that's coming off the top of my head right now. Oh, so I'm gonna, values is the nearest I can get, that we can all have common values. And you and I know, you and I would both go onto a site and come up with completely different designs. And we would be able to explain how the principles were expressed in that design. I'd be able to say to you, well, the whole of the design expresses the principles in these ways. But it wouldn't necessarily be, oh, that, that bit there is this principle and that bit there is this principle and that bit there is this principle. And the other thing about it is when you're talking about a plan, remember what we said previously about a plan being a snapshot in time. A lot of the principles refer to processes. They don't refer to design element. Where's creatively responding to change in this plan? Well, it isn't <laughs> because creatively responding to change is something we're going to do over time. And it's the thing that's going to make this plan completely irrelevant because something's going to happen that's going to make some element of this plan redundant and we're going to creatively respond to it. So okay. the principles... Principles are how we do permaculture all the time. They're not how we create a permaculture plan. That's it's, probably where I'm getting yeah, to with that. Get, yeah, it's great, Nick. It's, oh, it's great to hear you sort of riffing with the stuff and exploring it. And yeah, some, some of these things about uh, other principles are checklists. It'll be interesting to see if there's any reader comments or input on that. We're going to have yeah. to wrap it up. I've got a, oh, um, what a pity. another interview starting in five minutes. But thank you so much. I mean, it doesn't need to end here. Feeling very ex still excited about this first experiment. You know, there was a there was a lot to take in, but I think we've it was great to to hear it from you and then go through and hone in on a few bits and pieces. Thank and I'm you. Sure, I'm sure a lot of well, I mean, I got a lot out of it. I'm, I'm highly confident that listeners will too. And just so you know, like it seems like in the ballpark of a thousand people are, are listening to these things. So let us know what you what you Congratulations. made. Congratulations, that's wonderful. This. Yeah, it's it's cool. It's cool. It seems like people are happier to sit back and and listen than they are to read. <laughs> well, and um, I get and I get that. You know, you, yeah, can, you, totally. you can do that on a, you can do that anywhere. You can do it on a yeah, train. Yeah. You can do it in a car. Yeah, it's great. All right. Well, thanks, Meg. I thought I would wrap it up. I know. I mean, I know you're supposed to say, you know, have you got any closing comments? I mean, you can always throw one on. But what part of wrapping it up? It'd be good to leave you with something else to think about, which is in my opinion, if we were to go into a site with some set people and do com two completely different designs, I, to me, that would be an indication that something was wrong. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. No, I, I hear you. I think, we'd, I think there'd be strong similarities. Mm. I do think that. And I think maybe that's the best way to explain principles. The best way is that Dan Palmer and I, having never worked together, given the same site and the same people, would come up with, there, there would be a lot of common ground and the common ground would be because we come from this place where everything we do is informed by the ethics and principles, not because we asked ourselves, how am I doing A, B, C, D or E? Beautiful. All right. We'll wrap it up there for now, Meg. Thanks so much for your time. It's been awesome. Thanks, Dan. Awesome for me too. Thank you. I really loved it. It's, mm. it's always good fun. Yeah, yeah. That's great. And, and a good first run on something I hope to do much more of. Okay, well, I, I really do need to go. I've got two minutes and I'm checking with these people. Right. Thanks. Yeah, that, I think that was, right. that, was, that was brilliant. It was great. Yeah. Thank you. All right, thank I'll, you. I'll, I'll and you I don't through. say thank you enough. During the interview, you're paying me compliments and I'm going, don't say thank you every time Dan compliments you. It's just taking up time. <laughs> but um, thank what you. A, what an amazing chat that was. Re-listening to it, I was really just touched and... God, I don't know, inspired by all of these places that Meg has been on her journey with permaculture design and supporting others in, their, in the process of developing their, their places and spaces. Anyone who's been following Making Permaculture Stronger, you'll 
detect the amazing resonance with things that Meg has sort of independently discovered with some of the stuff um, I've been inspired within others and, and been exploring in my writing and, and other podcast conversations. So, wow, thank you, Meg. Look forward. I'm so delighted to be in touch with you and, and look forward to uh, further conversations and 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 learning more, swapping notes as we go along. I've on the release page. I've got a bunch of cartoons from Meg and other other resources. And if this is the first time you've come across this podcast, check out the website makingpermaculturestronger.net. There's lots going on. We're heading to some pretty exciting junctures in the coming months. There's more episodes on the way, and there's a lot of um, articles and inquiries and other people starting to feed in to this conversation I'm so passionate about, which is really about participating in the opening up of a space of critical self-reflection inside permaculture and and deep questioning where we channel the, the respect and love we have for this beautiful permaculture movement toward kind of rattling around and with some of the foundational base ideas and and where we're finding cracks or issues getting stuck into them and being honest fessing up about what's not great and and keeping permaculture as this alive evolving you know growing and strong soft and strong thing that's better and better able to deliver on its its aspirations and to be a real gift and a support to humanity or some part thereof in the coming years all right thanks again for listening i'll leave it there and look forward to catching you on the next chat bye-bye